Hello and welcome back to our holiday special. Uh, today's guest is Margot Sangster, meditation and mindfulness teacher and registered clinical counselor based out of Vancouver, Canada. Margot works with addiction and the road to recovery. She also shares about her own story and this idea of us identifying with our pain and what it takes to let go of that identity. And if we can let go of that identity, I truly appreciate her time. And uh, I know there's something that you're going to find out of the words that she shares with us today. Thank you for listening. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. So we have with us here today, Margot Sangster. Uh, she's a bit of an eclectic registered clinical counselor. She, she works in residential addictions treatment, as well as coaching and teaching mindfulness meditation. Thank How are you doing today, Margot? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? I'm, I'm good, thank you. It's, it, that's the first time I've ever done an introduction uh, with the person there. So I was like, oh, I hope I got that right. Um, it's It's been a, a while in the process us us making time to talk. And I originally uh, heard about you from uh, Reverend uh, Tat, Tatsu um, from the Vancouver Buddhist Temple. Yes, I, I think um, I think he connected to you to one of my colleagues locally. Right. And then she, for whatever reason, contacted me and asked me to do this interview. So thank you for that. Now, can you tell us a little bit about uh, mindfulness meditation, uh, about your practice there? Sure. Um, do you want to know about mindfulness generically or about my personal practice? Actually, your, your, your personal practice. Okay, so... Um, well, I had the good fortune uh, back in uh, 1982 when I was just a young'un and uh, to do a 10-day retreat in Nepal, 10-day silent meditation retreat in Nepal. And then that was a good experience, but it lay dormant for about another decade. And then, frankly, I encountered the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, not that all of life is suffering, but uh, so I got divorced. I turned 40. I was working with at-risk youth in the Philippines and in Canada. And frankly, I was confronted with my own powerlessness in the face of suffering. So as a result of that, I embarked on a trip to Asia for about two and a half years, volunteered there in a, a Buddhist meditation center, ended up living in California for two and a half years, lived at Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two years, and then commence teaching and mindfulness has been an integral part of my life. Um, whether I'm actively engaged in teaching or just as part of my day-to-day -day life. Wow. So you had this moment when you were 40, if I'm hearing that correctly, when you looked at yourself and you sort of asked, you know, who am I kind of thing? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I, I did ask, who am I? Um, I remember that actually in this moment, as you pointed out, but also, um, <coughs> excuse me, 
Um, I, I fortunately, I listened to myself and initially I went left and then I went right and I went left and I went right and none of those paths were working. Mm -hmm. And then one day I heard this little voice inside of me that said, you need a 10 day retreat, having done it 10 years earlier. And so once I heard and listened to that little voice inside, I very quickly um, made some calls and found the first 10 day retreat that seemed like a good fit for me. Now, these, like I've, I've heard of retreats, I've never done one myself. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about what a retreat is? Sure. I mean, a retreat can be short or long. That particular retreat was a 10-day retreat, following up on my earlier 10-day retreat. And they are almost exclusively in silence. And within my community, we do alternating sitting and walking. So sitting meditation, walking meditation, usually for 30 to 45 minutes. And um, usually you get a couple of uh, short interviews with the teacher each week. And you also usually have a yogi job and you usually have daily talks. So really what you're doing is, what I like to say is you're coming home to yourself. You're coming home to your thoughts, your feelings and your physical sensations. Now, if that's not something that we talk about a lot in day-to-day -day society and it can be a little um, sobering to come home to ourselves because Really, there's nowhere to run on a 10-day or a whatever right. duration silent retreat. So you're really left with yourself. So you see yourself and you need to find skillful ways to work with yourself. So in today's day and age, and I, I, I've said this before for listeners, um, but I feel like, and you talked about this first retreat in 1982, and here we are now in 2020, I feel like today there's more distractions than ever before. What's, what's your take on that? Um, well, I agree. There are more distractions than ever before. And certainly, um, as a friend of mine once commented when he was putting together a website for myself, basically mindfulness meditation, the techniques and the teachings provide a refuge for me in the midst of a busy life. So I'm highly engaged in the world, frankly, on multiple levels, but I have this very strong refuge that admittedly I've invested a lot of time and energy in. Um, and that's, that helps me stay centered in the midst of the busyness and stay connected to myself, knowing when to, like today I had the good fortune, it's a statutory holiday here in Canada. So I had the good fortune to get lots of sleep, meditate for an hour, go for a walk, take care of some of those little things that have been niggling. I just really had a chilled go with the flow day. It was nirvana. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm a new parent. I have a 14 month old and uh, I can attest yeah. to the importance and power of sleep. I mean, there's, there's actually a number of things. Uh, recently, I've started to do a little bit more meditation and it's, uh, it can be quite transformative, but it's very difficult for me, and I use lots of excuses, to find that half an hour time to be quiet and to shut off everything. And I, I'm so easily distracted. 
So it sounds like for yourself, it's taken you many years to sort of get good at that practice. Um, well, that's true. And it's highly important to clarify something about mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness meditation is not about having a peaceful or calm mind. Mindfulness meditation, in the words of Sharon Salzberg, one of the original um, senior teachers in North America, she said that mindfulness meditation is about being aware in the present moment of your thoughts, feelings, and sensations without judgment. And I like to add to that, or if judgment is present, you're aware of it being present. So when you talk about your mind not being centered, that's a moment of mindfulness when you know that. Your mind being centered. Yeah, so, you know, if you see that your mind is, is jangling or is running this way or is running that way, that's mindfulness. So mindfulness, pure and simple, is about seeing what is. In the seeing what is, over time or with the right conditions, you may enter those concentrated, concentrated states, those peaceful moments. Um, that's definitely part of the path. Um, but everything, frankly, is part of the path. And so for you, I would suggest mindful parenting. Right. <laughs> When you're with your child, are you really with your child? Or are you thinking about what you did an hour ago or you're going to do in an hour? Everything can be mindful mindfulness practice. So it really kind of comes down to the intent and the level of focus that you have in what you're doing. Yes. And when you see you're not focused, that's a moment of mindfulness. Okay. So you so it's not about like it's not about judgment, like, oh my gosh, I'm missing out on the moment. It's when you see your mind wandering, it's whoosh, bring it back to center. Exactly. It's, it's bring it back to center gently. Like mm -hmm. you might pick up your child and say no and bring it back. Mm -hmm. So it's not about taking a stick and beating yourself up for, oh, right. my goodness, my mind has wandered again. It's, well, look at that. It's about being curious. So look at that. My mind has wandered. Let's bring it back. The power of the practice is bringing it back again and again and again. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of an interesting point because I, in my life, I've been my, my worst critic. And when I make a mistake, I don't just make a mistake. I'm like, you know, oh, I'm such an idiot, right? Like I, I almost shame myself. Mm -hmm. And perhaps there's a lot of other people out there that do the same thing. So how do we get away from that, that very weighty shamefulness of when we make a mistake to just okay, let's, like you say, get back to center. Well, that, of course, takes some time and effort, but basically it's about cultivating self-compassion or self-empathy. And um, what I like to say, which isn't probably a dharmic teaching per se, but I like to say, give that inner critic another job. For example, turn them into a coach, mm. a benevolent coach. Right. So um, as I said, nothing need be left out of the practice. And unfortunately, you are right. Many people, particularly Westerners, have internalized uh, critics. And so, like I said, you know, when we're trying to grow a plant, we don't hit the plant with a stick and say, grow, grow now. We give it water and fertilizer and we 
cultivate the best we're able patients. Have you ever heard it was an experiment that a guy did? Um, I can't remember the name. Name slips me right now. But it was this experiment when he had a glass of water. And one person would speak calmly to the water. And mm -hmm. then the other experiment was the guy would like yell at the water. And then they looked at the water on like a molecular level. And the water that was being yelled at was cloudy. And the water that was being spoken to nicely was much clearer. Have you, have you heard of that experiment? Yes, I have. Do, do you know who the guy was? No, that I don't remember, but I, I, <laughs> I have heard of it. And we could draw the comparison to we're like vessels of possibility. Mm. And so we can, as I said before, take a, you know, a big stick um, and say, you know, um, be peaceful now. Or we can open to what is and find peace in the midst of what is. Right. That it's, it's just part of the journey. Totally. And even for people like myself, I mean, I will say my mind is radically different than it was uh, 25 years ago. Radically different. However, sometimes my mind gets jangled for whatever reason. So I'm much more uh, spacious about that now. It's like, Oh, look at that. So if, if you don't mind my asking, getting into a little personal question, what was the sort of the, the zenith, you know, that the apex moment when you're like, this is not working. I need to do something differently when you were 40. Well, that's a good question. Um, let me think for a moment. I think, um, you know, if we look at, the first noble tooth of suffering that I referred to earlier, aging. Was I happy to be turning 40? Frankly, not exactly. Right now, would I like to have my 40-year-old knees? You're darn right. I'd love to have my 40-year-old knees, not the knees I now have, although I'm very active anyhow. Um, it was more a case of it wasn't even so much the divorce or even turning 40. What it was more frankly was um, working with the at-risk youth in the Philippines and Canada. And um, one particular um, moment stands out where I was in my office in Canada and I was talking to a young um, female client from a country outside of the West. And she had just shared with me how her partner was battering her, was physically abusive towards her. And I said, well, we have to find you a safe house to go tonight. And she's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm going home. And it was that moment, that was one moment, it's not the only moment, but that moment where I realized, oh, I'm uh, powerless. This woman's going to do what she wants to do. And what she wants to do is go back to her partner and um, it was a bit of a wake-up call for me that my logic, my Western logic, um, my sense of what's right or wrong wasn't always going to apply. And um, that moment really was quite impactful for me. Um, and also working, I, you know, I went to the Philippines to work with at-risk youth and while it was one of the most heartful experiences, it was also one of the most heartbreaking experiences because we were working with um, the most marginal youth, marginalized youth in Manila. 
and uh, we were working with you know sex trade workers and pimps and um, sex trade workers, male or female pimps, um, people from poverty, people from abusive family backgrounds, people from good family backgrounds, but all in abject poverty. And so we got very, very close to them. Right. And it was like a loving to be frank. And still in the midst of that loving, there was so much pain and suffering. And that's the deal. You don't get the love unless you open to the whole, what I call meal deal. So you can't say, well, I'm only, I only want love. I'm not opening to the suffering of life or the world. Um, that is a very constricted place to be. So um, it's about, as I said earlier, finding a way of remaining grounded in the midst of suffering. I mean, we just have to look at the world or the environment or politics and see that there is no shortage of suffering. And so we need to find a way of staying um, well, staying grounded. And when you're not grounded, seeing that and then reconnect and refocus. So um, I watch a lot of news, I will confess, both American news, global news, Canadian news. And I worked in Afghanistan actually for a couple of years. And so I follow Afghan news daily. Oh. And all of these, these uh, news sources, it's not a path for the faint of heart. No. But I do have what I would call impeccable self-care, plus I have my mindfulness practice. So when you put the two together um, and then periodically just take a chill day, <laughs> like I did today. A break, yeah. I mean, I still did things, but they were really little mundane things, like taking the garbage out, for example. I was ecstatic to take out the garbage. <laughs> You know, taking, being grateful, that's the other thing. Being mm. grateful for all of the little things in life. So when I was coming back from my walk, I actually went through my mind how many things I had to be grateful for today. And I came up with about 15, including one of them was taking out the garbage. And so I was really actively cultivating gratitude in the most mundane ways. I, I love how you say that, cultivating gratitude. and. Really, if you just stop and think about it, you can be grateful. Anybody can be grateful for something, right? Mm -hmm. Just being able to breathe, you know, to breathe unobstructively. That's something to be grateful for. Totally, because as we're speaking right now, there are people taking their last breath. Right. What, you mentioned this this truth, this truism of, of Buddhism, and, and this is suffering. Can we ever end suffering? Well, two points. First, first point is that Buddhist teachings don't say that all of life is suffering. It's just that suffering is a natural and gotcha. inevitable part of life, but they're not saying all of life is suffering. And can we end it? Well, actually, I have a two point or two part answer to that. The cause of suffering within the community I'm involved with is greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, sadly, I'm not seeing the cessation of greed or hatred or delusion anytime mm. soon. However, I like to remember Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison, and he was able to emerge from prison. And actually, I was in Kenya that year. I saw him within months of him coming out of prison. He was able to emerge from prison 
grounded, standing as tall as he could and with his heart open to those who had put him in prison. So, so there's the unpleasantness of life, and then is, there's our response or reaction to life. And the only thing we can control is our response. That's it. Right. Yeah, I mean, because Nelson Mandela, I mean, that's a historical example, or a, a wonderful example. Gandhi, right? These people that they could have totally gone one way or the other way, but they chose the centered path. You did mention too that during this period of transformation, if you will, that your mind is going to the right and to the left. Is that anything specifically the right and the left? Like when I think of that, I think of the political spectrums. What do you mean by the right and the left? That's a very good clarifying question. So um, I may not use that example in future. Um, a better way to say it is, when I was 40, I used to say, I wish I could take my head off and put it on a shelf. Why? Because my mind was all over the place. Oh, gotcha. But now, I don't think, I, I don't think I've said that for years. Because I've really, admittedly in my case, I really focused and went deep into the, the practices and the teachings. Um, but if my mind is, is um, restless for a while, I just know it's restless for a while and I don't have a big reaction to it. Right. This, the, the concept of this too shall pass. Yes, exactly. Right. I mean, I, it, all things will pass. Nothing is, you know, static. Nothing is static. Um, you know, when we're eating, um, when my mother was alive, we would share coffee Haagen-Dazs ice cream together. And, um, you know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be having coffee Haagen-Dazs ice cream every day, all day, you know, but once in a while, it was a nice thing, but I wouldn't want it to last forever. So even those pleasant sensations, they pass, they arise, they stay, they pass. The good news is the unpleasant sensations arise, stay, or pass. Or if they don't, if they don't pass, you can really start to cultivate your relationship to them. And also in, in the meditation practice, we sometimes go like if I was to think of myself, I could say, oh, if my knees are aching, let's move your awareness to where your body makes contact with the chair. So there's many different skillful means, that's a term, a Buddhist term, skillful means for how to manage whatever is happening. What, what helps you, what's a skillful strategy for you to manage? Well, you already pointed out one of them. I'm not trying to control the uncontrollable. Right. That's one, but another slightly different one would be, you know, maybe I'm having an interaction with a client at work and maybe it's a little bit tense. So if I'm wise, if they're wise, we might either choose to disagree or we might take a time out. And I won't, ideally I won't freeze them as the difficult client. I'll go, well, that wasn't so much fun. But maybe later today or tomorrow will be better. So, you know, trying to rest in the present moment, but not fixate 
um, on the present moment and stay stuck there when it's past. I think you, you raise a good point. And by the way, if I ever get it wrong, please do correct me. But there's, there's a lot that we try to own in our lives. We try to own our successes, own our failures. And I talked about that a little bit before. And I think in disagreements that we have with people, there's a sense of ownership too, which makes things, like you said, tense, right? If I disagree with you, you think that it's, it's against your identity. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I think it's against my identity when somebody disagrees with me and I get my back up and I tense up. But when I step back and I think, okay, hold on, they're not saying that, you know, I'm an idiot, for example. They're just saying maybe what I said doesn't make sense. So it's how do we get away from that ownership and that identity, I guess. Yes, and that's um, a powerful practice that I am still working on somewhat, I will acknowledge. Um, you know, fundamentally, um, and I'm not sure how far to go into things, but fundamentally, there is no abiding self. And so we're trying to defend our ego and we're trying to defend a self that we ultimately don't have total control over. Mm. Although that might sound like a contradiction to what I said earlier, but if I had total control over my body, I would have my 40 or 20 year old needs and I'd be hiking up and down mountains right now. I mostly hike up mountains. Right. <clears throat> so, um, or if, if I had total control over my mind, now I have a lot more control over my mind than I did in the past. And still I get, you know, sometimes caught up in something, identified with something. And um, the more we can just relax and be um, more open, less attached to our opinions, it comes down to attachment, less attached to our opinions, um, and also attached to our self or who we take ourself to be. And of course, sadly, what's been unfolding politically more recently is a major example of people being attached to their opinions. Even yesterday, frankly, I got a, a text from someone initially, I didn't know who it was, but it was one of my nieces. And she and I are on radically different ends of the spectrum. Right. And, you know, her, to her credit, uh, to her credit, she spoke her mind. She's about 35. Um, but I went, oh, my goodness, we are on different planets. Mm. So, um, you know, we, we managed to express our, she expressed her opinion. I expressed my opinions. And then we kind of went our separate ways. If I see her at some point in the future, she lives out of town up north, um, you know, I'm sure I'll give her a hug. So it's about respecting, as you know, the worth of the person right. and not getting too enmeshed in what they do or don't think, even in what they do or don't do. It's, you know, with my clients, I said this to them just yesterday, it's about them learning to see their inherent worth as a human being because Frankly, you know, I was talking to a former gang member yesterday and he has a lot of shame, but he's slowly working on unraveling that. 
And, you know, he and the other people that were in the room, they all have a lot of shame about their addiction and what they've done as a result of their addiction. So I like to continuously remind them to come to love and value themselves as human beings and realize that, yes, they've done some unskillful things, but they can separate that out. They still have to take responsibility for their former actions. And still, they don't have to denigrate themselves as human beings. That's, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good point. I am kind of interested. What is it that, that you guys were disagreeing about? Because I'm wondering where, what your stance is on things. Are you kind of like an apolitical person or? No, I'm highly politicized. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so it's interesting. You're in, the, you're in the U.S., is that right? No, I'm, I'm, I'm in Vancouver. Oh, you're I, in Vancouver. I, well, I'm in Surrey to be specific. So, you know. <laughs> okay. So um, this niece, niece lives in Northern BC, as I said. Right. And, you know, I'm thrilled about the VP elect in the US. Yeah, me too. I've been, I've been posting to that effect. So <laughs> I found that great graphic. You may or may not have seen it or heard of it. There's this great graphic that shows the 50 or so former right. American VPs and then uh, Kamala Harris standing next to those, those um, headshots. So I've been trying to disseminate that as fully as possible once <laughs> I got my hands on it. Because as a female and as a woman who's supportive of women of color, I just think it's amazing. So I, I sent it off through Messenger to about, I don't know, 20 or 40 or 50 people. I just go through and I click. Yeah. Clicking can be dangerous. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I, I went through and I saw my niece. I saw a few of my nieces and I thought, I'm sending it off. Yeah, send, yeah. <laughs> so, and she's probably the most uh, resistant. Um, mm -hmm. So um, I sent it off to her and it took less than 24 hours for the response. It came from a phone number I didn't recognize. And so I thought though it was probably her, but I just said, um, I'm not sure who this is. And then I said, but are you referring to uh, Kamala Harris's, you know, graphic? And I said, you know, because my niece responded with jabs at immigrants, right. universities, because she thinks they're all left-leaning. And um, what else did she, anyhow, she poked at about three things. So I responded to the three pokes, but in a very grounded, neutral, assertive language. Um, and then she responded back and identified herself. And that's when she made the comment about, oh, I pointed out that Kamala is a lawyer, a very accomplished lawyer. Right. And she said, yeah, she probably went to one of those left-leaning universities. <laughs> Anyhow, and, and my niece, bless her heart, you know, I'm not sure if she's finished grade 12, that particular niece or not. So anyhow, that, that's the context. So I've been following the American election very closely, but also the provincial election very closely. Um, and frankly, the Afghan elections closely. I follow a lot of elections pretty closely. Well, and I'm no political analyst by any stretch, but I do feel like that victory in the United States on Saturday was just a change in the psyche of society like I just feel like it was a breath of fresh air now is that just you know my wishful thinking probably but that's certainly what it felt with that 
with that victory. It was just a change. And I, I, I guess that, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say with, with mindfulness and the sort of the anger and the frustration, the, you know, racism, what, where does that sort of speak to your practices? How can we get away from that? I guess you're saying, what's the antidote? Well, that's, you know, I could probably write a thesis on that, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think one, there's mindfulness of speech, right? Two, two, there's being very clear on your intention. And that's why with my niece, I tried to be uh, direct and honest and transparent and clear, but not attack. Um, three, there's what's called um, fierce compassion. So mm -hmm. I'm going to speak my truth, although I am going to be mindful of when it's helpful or not helpful. Um, but I'm also going to see the inherent worth of others to the best of my ability. Now, I don't always achieve that if I'm hooked in. But, you know, for example, if we talk about the political situation south of the border, while right. I'm extremely um, troubled by what's happened over the last years, at the same time, I personally see a wounded little boy hmm. who is not well. Yeah. And... Um, so, you know, I do feel, frankly, compassion for that person. Does that mean I'm going to ever, if I was an American, vote for him? No. And does that mean I would, does that mean I went to the, um, to, to that rally they had when he was first elected in Vancouver? Yes. You know, opposing his election. So it doesn't mean that I'm going to stay silent or I'm not going to act, but I'm going to try to act in ways and speak in ways that do not demonize the other, because really the other and the self are more connected than not. And that's a bit of a delusional thing to think that we're actually different. Um, so, right. and you know, you're right. There was a huge sigh of relief for myself and for some of my friends. And I saw a friend today on the streets when I was out walking, we feel like we can breathe again. We feel like we can relax again. It isn't going to be a total panacea because we still have the, yes. we still have greed, hatred and delusion, but at least we're dealing with some, we're dealing with the president elect. He, he, one is experienced Two, he's grounded three, he's heartful Four, he, has the intention to unify, whether he's successful or not. And he he tries to act sort of like what we would expect from a decent human being. <laughs> I, I really do like what you said though, about being compassionate of antagonizing figures. And like you said, there's, there's hurt, hurt people hurt people, right? That old expression, which, which brings me over to the work that you do in addictions is—is is that what you sort of notice? Because, for example, you know, I used to struggle with uh, with alcoholism in my twenties, and the reason why is because I enjoyed it, right? Like it was very hedonistic. It was like, yeah, you know. And I wonder if what? Well, here, here's my question: What role does pleasure-seeking behavior have to do in being mindless? <clears throat> and addictions. Um, yeah, that's a good um, 
question. Um, it's not, a, frankly, it's not an aspect we talk about that frequently. We more talk about like, I can tell you, so I work in a 35 bed treatment facility. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that 95 plus plus percentage of the people we work with have um, come from trauma backgrounds. Right. And so they're usually um, involved in substances to avoid difficult feelings, sadness, fear, um, disappointment, hurt. Um, it can even be, well, irritation, of course, not getting what they want. It can also even be joy because if their experience with joy has been um, convoluted, um, joy can stir up um, a feeling of unworthiness, for example. But in terms of your question, um, we don't as a society talk very much about the truth of life. The truth of life is there's pleasant, there's unpleasant, and there's neutral. We as a society tend towards suggesting that success is about the pleasant. And that somehow if you just work hard enough or if you do the right things or if you are the right person or you look the right way, you're gonna be able to live in a eternal state of pleasure. But that is not the fine print on being a human being. If you were maybe a cat or a dog or I don't know, a goldfish perhaps, I don't know, um, that might work. But we have a brain as a human being and we also I like to jokingly say the minute there's more than one person in the room, <laughs> you know, uh, there's the potential for uh, disconnection. Right. So um, for people who want to always be in pleasure states, like let's take alcohol. You mentioned alcohol. And I actually, frankly, work with a lot of people who struggle with alcohol. So, yeah, alcohol, and certainly I drank in my late teens and 20s, um, you know, alcohol takes you up. Yeah. And you feel uninhibited and, you know, happy. The prefrontal cortex right. is shut down, right? Yeah. I'll do whatever. And, yeah. and then it drops you down. Mm. So it's actually a depressant. Yeah. So one alcohol is a depressant. And so anybody who's seeking enduring happiness and alcohol, because I work with people who are uh, 19 to 75, some of them, you know, they're in their 20s struggling with alcohol and marijuana for that matter, or else they're in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And so if you're looking for eternal happiness, good luck. <laughs> because, right. because it's not going to happen. Even, you know, some people maybe have an easier time of it than others. If I think about my mother's friends, you know, they were both... Um, white he was a retired airline pilot they lived in west vancouver uh they had a sailboat um i could see she wasn't happy all the time but they had a good marriage they had three children and they were in their uh they were in their late 70s when one day their favorite daughter went with her husband on a road trip to the u.s and came back and it was dark and they hit black ice and sadly, their beloved daughter, their middle daughter, I think it was, uh, died when she the car ended up in a ditch. 
and she didn't even die from the carving in the ditch, but the fluids out of the car went into the ditch and she inhaled those. That's what she died from. And so there they were with, I'm sure more money than I will ever see in my lifetime. You know, they lived in the high-end retirement home. You know, they'd had a very privileged life, traveled extensively, sailed, you know, in the Galapagos, et cetera. Yeah. But ultimately, the first noble truth of suffering or that life has got a mix of pleasant and unpleasant arose in their life. And it was really shocking for them because they just hadn't had that kind of experience. And so they had to grapple with that in their late 70s into their 80s. Well, I, 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 that brings up that, that good point of we don't own anything. Everything is on loan. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. So we really just have to appreciate everything that we have. I mean, I'll be honest. Uh, do, do you have kids? No, I never had children of my own, but frankly, I like to think I'm reparenting those who had difficult childhood or adolescent experiences. So you very much have a stake in the lives of others. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I and like I th- to help people. Yeah. And, and I think that that is the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you think is the meaning of life? Well, that's, you asked very good questions. Um, Well, a couple of things. One, I think it's important to note that while I like to help others, I do recognize that like on the planes, I have to put my own mask on first. Yes. So particularly if you're going to help others, you better be helping yourself so you can help others and helping yourself because otherwise everyone's at risk. That's point one. And then the meaning of life. Um, I don't know, I guess I'll, I'll default to the Buddhist answer to that, perhaps, which is do good, avoid harm and purify the mind. I like that. Do good. Sorry, do good. Avoid harm. Avoid. Okay, do good, avoid harm. And purify the mind. Uh, yeah, well, I got to. I'm going to I'm going to integrate that one into my own life now. It, Sort of just, I'm looking at the time here and, and I'm kind of coming up to some of my last questions. Although we could talk forever and I hope that we could talk again. Yes, of course. Addictions, what do you think is the key? First of all, what are addictions? Well, um, our addictions are engaging in substances or behaviors that harm yourself and others, Mm -hmm. I would suggest. I mean, that's just my definition in this moment. So, you know, as you know, it can be alcohol or drugs, but it can also be um, the internet, gambling, shopping, food. There's any number of addictions, Uh, computer games. Um, So, um, sorry, what was the other question? Did you have another question? Yeah, the other question is what's what's the solution to addiction? Oh, the solution. Well, um, you know, I did, as I say, I did look at your um, some of your previous talks or posts, and as you said, the person has to really want it. They have yes. to. I, 
I, ha I hate to say this, but from my point of view, they have to have bottomed out, whatever that means for them. Yeah. You know, the, the clients that I spoke with yesterday, for one of them, he really doesn't want to be back on the streets again. He knows yeah. if he's young. His life he depends knows, on it. His life, well, actually, he said that yesterday. He knows that if he doesn't get it together now, and he's actually the guy who was formerly in the gang, um, he knows if he doesn't get it together, he'll be back on the streets, and he knows that if he goes back to his DOC drug of choice, he's likely going to die. And so to his credit, he, because of his family, but also he genuinely wants to live. So you have to really want to change and you want, you have to really be willing and able, or at least willing to learn how to change. You have to really want to change. We have a saying, which is, what do you have to change in addictions? And the answer is everything. Uh, and maybe that's a bit of an overgeneralization, but largely speaking, it is almost everything. And so um, if I think about another client, though, yesterday, a woman in her um, late 50s, her situation's a bit diff different in terms of, you know, she's got a nice home, and but she's in a toxic relationship, and she doesn't want to leave it, but at the same time, She's carrying so much trauma from the past, both overt and intrinsic, that it's, I, I, as I get to know her, I see that the issue is she can't say yes to herself. She can't say no to another and thereby say yes to right. herself. So while that would we cause too to, much guilt, right? Well, and I think it's, um, for her, it's fear. We're still unraveling it. She's quite complex. And, you know, she's a very accomplished, creative and intellect um, from another country outside of Canada. And, um, and she loves her husband. Um, and they're a very good fit in some ways, but the toxicity in the relationship, and it's not physical abuse, the toxicity is ultimately killing her. And so she needs to learn to set boundaries and maintain those boundaries. So you have to really want it. You have to be prepared to do basically whatever it takes. And that's why for younger people, it's really hard because they have to walk away from their normal peer group. Yeah. And they, for young people, it's very hard to envision a life without maybe alcohol or marijuana. I can attest um, to that, yeah. Yeah, well, and as you know, you're still, look at you, you're a successful individual um, with a good life. It's not perfect, I'm sure, and you're probably not 100% happy all of the time because that's not realistic. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you have to you have to be willing to do the work that's required, and frankly, you have to let go of those people, places, and things. That's like the buzzword: that. people, places, and things. And it takes some people a number of tries. We have one client where I work who's long since graduated, but it took him 10 residential treatments. And he'd been on the streets and he had a buggy, but he eventually, he just kept trying and trying. And he's a guy who'd grown up in, you know, a good home, quote. Um, but he's now, touch wood, he's, he's got his own little business and he's in a relationship with another person in treatment. And he's become a father to her children. 
And I hope as I'm saying this in this moment, because of COVID-19, I haven't seen him in yes. months now, but I, I hope that he's still going along. And is it perfect? No. Is it always easy? No. But I hope that the two of them have got their feet on the ground, they're focused for it, and they know what they need to do. That's, that's awesome. I, well, the other thing I've noticed is that people who are sober, they can become incredibly successful, right? Because they have this, this innate ability. I mean, you know, you, you think about the number of successful business people and, uh, you know, rock stars, artists, people, these really emotionally intelligent people, they get away from their substances of choice and they go on to create wonderful things. The clients that I work with on overall, highly intelligent. Yes. And frankly, frequently very creative. These are very bright people. But unfortunately, as I tell them, I say to them, the reason I'm in this chair and not in that chair is that my obsessiveness has landed on things like education, spirituality, travel, health. I say you just have to shift that ability to focus um, onto things that serve you. It's a good point. Yeah, th- this idea of a shift. Well, well, Margot, I uh, like I said, I'm looking at the time. There's so much more that I I want to unpack with you, like your work in Afghanistan and uh, and beyond. Um, just to finish up, what's what's on the uh, the agenda for you? What's What's in store for you? Well, um, that's yet another good question. <laughs> you get 10 out of 10 for your questions. Oh, thank you. Um, what's in store for me? Well, I'll answer that in two ways. The first answer is the future is unknown except for death. Right. That's kind of an eternal truth. Yes. But in, in my case, um, One new development in my life is um, that I'm going to become a part-time mentor for, (laughs) excuse me, for um, students that are in Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock's Mindfulness Meditation Teaching Certificate Program. So um, that's something I'm going to be doing in 2021 um, on a part-time basis, as I said, and um, that will be a way for me to share my love of the Dharma. Not that I'm not doing it in my current workplace, but I'll be able to share it with people who are really exclusively focused on doing that and taking it out into society at large. Awesome. And, and final question, homework for myself and listeners. What is something that they can do uh, in their own daily lives that can help them to become more mindful? Um. Well, when you find yourself agitated or harried or in a funk, whatever that means, maybe just stop and give yourself a few minutes to breathe and breathe fully down into the abdomen and just to reconnect with yourself and let your um, activated nervous system, calm down. I just did that right there. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Margot. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, and like I said, hope to have you on again. 
Feel free. You take care. All right, and you also and your family. Once again, that was Margot Sangster. I love what she said about the truth of life, the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral, and how in our own pursuits, in my own pursuits, I'm always trying to project a certain message that I'm living such a pleasant life. I certainly don't like projecting my unpleasantries the neutral things of life, the doldrums, you know, I, it's always about, look at how great everything is. Look at how great I am. I'm the richest man in the world. When really I still do have an appetite for other things. I am working at things and I want to get better at other things. And I find that there's places in my life that I'm lacking, but I don't always like communicating that. I try to communicate sometimes falsely about how great everything is. And to get back to being more authentic is a difficult, risky, and vulnerable thing to do. And maybe that's not necessarily what I need to do, but I do believe that being honest with ourselves and our intentions, we will live happier, more full lives. And, and I really think that that's a message that resonated with me and what Margot was saying. So... I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you got something from it. And I wish you and your family and friends uh, a happy and healthy, safe holiday. Take care. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.